So how many hit points do you think War and Peace has? How many how many times do I have to hit it with a <laughs> with a broadsword? With a broadsword. What if I use what if I'm two-handed? What if I use two hands to do it? Is it asleep? Do I do critical damage <laughs> if it's asleep? If you surprise a copy of War and Peace. <laughs> My name is Nathan Pletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. What are we talking about on the Design Games Podcast this time, Will? Nathan, this time we're talking about setting some more, including how to design links between your setting and your game. There's a utility to saying, I'm going to use a familiar setting or time frame or world at a stage in your design, either as a stopgap or as a there's other things that I'm working on Yeah, that needs some kind of fictional context, but I'm not 100% set on what that's going to be. So this is a, yeah, it's Tolkien. Like I'm doing this fantasy game and it's about all these things and uh, it'll just, I'll just use Middle Earth names and geography and, and assumptions because I have them in my head and the people that I'm playtesting with right. get it. And I think the danger comes from saying, not examining that assumption later in the process or even yes. as part of the development process. Examine it. That's the exact word I was going to go for as when, when you were talking. There isn't necessarily in design, in production is a different thing, but in design there isn't necessarily a point in which it is too late to examine your setting right? and why it is what it is and how much of it is what it is, which is to say if the game is about World War One fighter pilots, mm. we don't necessarily need rules for U-boats or we don't necessarily need to discuss U-boats in the fiction, right? Because right. everything is, any any setting no matter how much it seems to be nonfiction, is fiction. It's all artifice. Right. Because it's never everything that was actually present in the nonfiction. A quick but perhaps illustrative tangent. After Carrie, my Marines in Vietnam game came out, when I was like describing it and pitching at conventions and that kind of thing, I was describing it as a game about Vietnam. But after a couple a couple years, really, I realized that I'd actually been describing it wrong. It's a game about all the stories and fictionalized accounts and cultural memory that people after Vietnam made about Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Like that's the actual setting is the memory of Vietnam, not the actual on the ground historical reality necessarily. And a memory of an era like because one of the things and I love this about Carrie, but one of the things about war in any context, I think, in history is that people respond to and are comfortable talking about it different ways over time. Right. Right. And so it wasn't like, it's not even, I don't think Carrie, like if you made Carrie today, it would be a very different game. Yes. Because again, the cultural memory of Vietnam is different now, mm. even than it was, I mean, how old is Carrie now? 10 years. Right. Is it exactly 10 years? Yep. And that's not that long in, in the history of warfare and the history right. of memories of war. But in terms of the cultural context of creating a game about war, right. it's a different about, context with a different association with what that means. Well, and what right. people have been comfortable saying about revealing or sharing or mm-hmm. not sharing about Vietnam in the last 10 years versus the last 15 years versus the last 20 years. Those are all different kind of you know metrics almost. There's, there's different versions of our memory of the war. Maybe a, a takeaway point about that is you're starting somewhere with your setting whether it's a one-line thing or whether you're writing up a gazetteer or whether you're mm-hmm. using an established property or whatever, you are you're you have some a starting point with it. But the design process itself and then the play experience with the game will tend to reveal what it's actually, what the actual setting is in a way. Like our World War II fighter pilots, are they German fighter pilots? Are they British fighter pilots? Are they Japanese fighter pilots? Like right. we can, that setting changes specifying a more specific landing point 
for that setting then creates an entirely different set of assumptions about the material that you're going to be engaging with. And from which, from where you're standing when looking at it, right? what perspective you have on it. I mean, for example, uh, I keep thinking about World War One for, for this as an example, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, compare, for example, if it's a game about British fighter pilots in World War One or World War Two. Mm-hmm. Or French fighter pilots in World War One versus American fighter pilots in World War Two, something like that. But right. also, that's a great example, I think, which that you just sketched out is the fact that everything that you base setting on is always in the same way that we talk about it being incomplete. But is a, you're cutting out a shape from all of history or a fictional world or whatever it is, and the mechanics cut out one shape, which is to say, this is a game about fighter pilots, and so we're going to have rules for that stuff and mm-hmm. not rules for other stuff. Setting is doing the same thing. Yes. And the more intentionally, you can, it can happen by accident, but then you get to cut off the ragged edges mm-hmm. and make it you know, a happy and pleasing and meaningful shape. But when you shape that stuff and you say, it's not just a game about pilots in World War II or bomber pilots in World War II, it's night witches. Right. It's a different shape. It's about different. It's about a, a very specific set of things. And in many ways, if you think of it as almost a load-bearing structure, more and more I'm of the opinion that the less broad a game is, the greater weight it can carry. Not necessarily dramatic weight, but in terms of the more stuff you can pack into it. Like if you make a game about World War II, I don't want encumbrance rules mm-hmm. because that's a lot of different possible things that could end up in the encumbrance rules. But if you make a game like Carry that is kind of about what we are taking with us, mm. suddenly I love that. I love the idea of it being about physical and emotional baggage, about preparedness and surprise, about all kinds of stuff. In the same way, right, that there's no one movie that is a, that is an a- accurate. This the, this one movie is World War II. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so games are similarly, they, they cut out a piece of their topic. And you don't necessarily know at the beginning. And so, I, I mean, yeah, a, a one-sentence starting point is, is fine. I'm sure there are great games that can then winnow it back down to one sentence as a setting. What are the actual methods to create and establish the engagement of non-setting elements with the setting so that it's part of your cohesive design as a whole and not simply in this world here's the game right so that you don't have that that weird loose layer of skin over the musculature of the game so that so that you have setting and or I should say so that you have theme and content interacting in a way that is actually meaningful mm-hmm. as opposed to one of them being the wrapping paper and the other one being the thing. I was thinking about this a lot just recently. And uh, and one of the things that I realized is that one of the first things to make peace with as a designer, I think, of setting is to not design too much of your setting before your mechanics are running. You can say, I want to do it, and my, that my Insomniac fighter pilot game is set in World War One, but that's still a nice big area. It gives you some, some theme and, and, and substance and style to work with. But if you drill too much into theme or you or you build too much of setting before the mechanics are cooled then i think you have a problem or you 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 risk a problem where your mechanics and your setting will feel separate like they were built in parallel but not in tandem kind of one can lead the other and it's Mm -hmm. not necessarily wrong that one should lead the other Mm -hmm. but one should lead the other as opposed to if they're in parallel and the notion is hey i just saw a movie about the red baron and it was awesome and my mechanics or have, I have this great system and the only way that they'll work is if there are missile rules in it. Well, then hmm. either you're dealing with a fictional setting or you're moving to a different time or whatever. You want the setting to respond to the mechanics as much or to be able to. You want them to have the option right, to respond to mechanics in addition to the mechanics responding to the setting. Yes. You don't owe something to the setting necessarily because you can hmm. always fictionalize it. Do you feel like there's a kind of binary switch almost between saying this game is set in this setting, like this game is set in World War II? Okay. Because of that, I'm not going to provide a bunch of material because that exists and 
has been done by other people better than I can do it because it's real history. So here's the game. It's set in World War II. I don't also need to write a book of history on World War II. You can go look it up. Right. It's everywhere. Right. Okay. Because I completely agree, and I think we'll talk about more about the aligning system and all the other elements, character, situation, everything with setting. Right. But there is kind of this almost point or switch or or out of saying like, oh, but this is set in this in this time. You figure that part out. Right. But here's the game. While I think that is especially in RPGs possible because of the way that RPGs interact with both imagination and the creation of fiction during play, I'm not sure that I agree that it is a binary switch because if I play your game and I say these rules are totally right, that totally feels like World War II and you had nothing in theme other than a sentence saying this game is set in World War II, then A, you have stuff that is talking about World War II even though you didn't quote unquote write a bunch about it, you did, it's in the mechanics. Or if I play your game and I go, this is exactly the way 1980s movie versions of fighter pilots work and it's set in World War II, you've either left me to make assumptions about why that is, about relating Top Gun and the Battle of Midway, Mm -hmm. or I'm going, and and in those assumptions is the assumption that the designer did not necessarily get it right. That that, that the mechanics in the setting don't actually align or interact the way that, that maybe the designer either one of them two or it's asserting that they do mm-hmm. by just saying this game is set in World War II. I don't know that it's necessarily a dial or a spectrum that is as vast as we might think of when we talk about dials and spectrums or sliders or whatever. But I do think that it is more than binary because it is possible to hit targets other than those two. Mm-hmm. Look at a game like X-Wing, which is, while not an RPG, built on game rules for World War One and World War II, mm-hmm. as were the cinematics of Star Wars, but feels apt for Star Wars-style space dogfights, even though that does not obey the rules of outer space or really the rules of how aircraft work. But it feels of a piece. It feels like it fits. Now, if they base those same rules on World War II naval, naval battles or on Napoleonic ship combat mm-hmm. for Star, Star Wars fighter craft, it wouldn't feel right. So just saying, oh, and also it's set in this period is not doing enough work, I don't think. Because if you really did model a particular thing, it will ideally convey something, familiarity in some way. And the only way it won't is if your audience is... is innocent enough of both your subject matter and the mechanics inspiration, which is to say, if I know nothing about Napoleonic battles and I know nothing about Star Wars, I might go, okay, great, Mm -hmm. fun game. Right. But then what you've done is set me in a position where the further I go off in either direction, the more I just, either the more confused I become about your game or the more I realize that it is not quite what it says on the tin. So I'm thinking here about something like Carolina Death Crawl in which its immediate setting is very important. Its context is important, but the actual large-scale backgrounds of what's going on in the tactically or strategically in the universe at that time, in the world, in the warfare, in the theater of war at that mm. time is actually less important. Right, and that uses a, a couple different methods to communicate setting, including a like some short paragraphs of like, here is the immediate context for your characters. Right. Um, and then a, a guided progression through a, a physical map of like, you start out in this, Town and you're trying to go to this burg, and then the the cards themselves, you know, sometimes add as appropriate ex- setting details as well. Also becomes an example of setting accruing, which yes. is that to start playing that game, you don't need to know a whole lot. Mm. You have a vibe and you have atmosphere, and then you know more at the end than you did at the beginning. And that's first of all a great example of learning games without the game just being a lesson in something because mm-hmm. it's still exploratory in its direct text, even though its theme is pretty well baked in exactly how you cut out this piece of history. And because we're not just talking about slice cutting up a map, it's not a 2D representation you're cutting from, right? You get to cut up into the air and down into the heart and say, this this game is about the skies above Belgium and is about deep inside the hearts of the 
people on the ground. In thinking about this question of how to uh, kind of embark on this integration as part of your design, I kind of thought about two things, and I'd like to hear, A, if there's other things I haven't thought of, and B, where we go from here. So the first approach is that you can build mechanisms into your game that create the setting. And this is both stuff like world building kind of stuff. I'm thinking here of one of my favorites, which is from Brendan Taylor's Mortal Coil, where you are creating this magic rich world. You're all playing people who have magic. But when you start a game of it, you go through a, a essentially a world building phase where you define what magic does. When I, as a player, say, okay, well, elemental magic summons like spirits from the elemental planes or something like that. And then the GM defines kind of like a, a cost or some kind of negative or drawback or something that makes that a that makes the use of that magic dangerous and, and fraught with peril. Right. So I might say, anyone with elemental magic can summon elemental spirits. And the GM might say, the elemental spirit always demands a favor of you in return for their service, or something like that. And then throughout, But then throughout the rest of the game, you can continue adding magical facts from both sides of the, of the table. And the other side always defines the, the counter point to it. So mm-hmm. you start out defining kind of broad strokes of stuff that you know you want to see. And then in the game, when you get to a certain moment and you're like, oh, I want, I want this kind of magic to work this way so I can get what I want out of the scene you accrue more setting through this back and forth of it does this with this drawback. So that's a very kind of upfront version. While I think another version that is in lots of games is when you have narratively defining power over things like, I'm now going to tell you what this power on my sheet does. Or when I get the high roll, I get to say what happens, even that kind of thing, right? You can use those um, opportunities of narrative to create and add more more setting and more details and more foundation for later things. Mm-hmm. So those are two broad examples of creating setting through specific me- mechanics. Right. The other approach is when you're working out your, your setting, you're identifying opportunities for mechanics to support what the setting is about in the name of, of making the setting what the game is about, you know, make your, your setting and your game be about the same thing. If you create a setting where wizards bind elementals to do all these things for them, you've now created an opportunity to build mechanics about summoning and binding elementals, which you may want to take advantage of, or you leave that as a setting element. And then when people say, I want to bind this elemental, what happens? Is it just part Mm -hmm. of the conversation is it something that's handled through some other more general set of mechanics or do you create a a specific way to go about doing that so yeah those were kind of the two broad approaches that i saw in thinking about this question both of them strike me as interacting with the settings situation diagram that we talked about Mm -hmm. last time and that is is at the website in the interest of approaching this in a way that will make sense in radio that will make sense when i describe (laughs) it first without having to get out literally a z-axis onto that diagram yet so part of it is that if we picture the the Venn diagram of setting and situation and then the overlap is actual play, where they intersect is really kind of the meat. I mean, play can spill over into either one technically, but or the conversation of play can spill over into either one. But like setting without play is reading and situation without play is often reading as well, but as right. far as potential. <laughs> um, and so it's when they, when they overlap doesn't have to be play, but it is where play takes place. Yes. Building, setting, like especially in Mortal Coil, and I love that system in Mortal Coil. What's interesting to me about that system and the way that Mortal Coil works is that it is reversing the order of operations on essentially the portrayal of magic systems from fiction, including movies and novels, hmm. to arrive at the same place. It is backing up to get there. 
a magic system is seldom built bef- while a novel is being written. It may be right. changed while a novel is being written. Mm-hmm. So in Mortal Coil, though, it can be built as during play because mm-hmm. it's playful to build. And that's great. When you build a magic system for a novel, you decide how it works, and then you find ways to show how it works. Ideally, right, the, the, the magic in your novel is serving the, the story and the character. And, and, right. it, and it can change and, and develop over time as that's right. true. And it'll change as the needs of the narrative change. And as the narrative raises questions that you didn't think about during the formation of the magic right. system. But as an example, if I design the magic system first, and then I want to tell a story in it, I may start applying the same kind of decision-making that you make in Mortal Coil during the writing. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, so why doesn't my main character solve all of their problems with a fire elemental? So the fiction is providing the impetus to reach the same decision. But the way you make those, the way you raise and answer those questions in Mortal Coil is not entirely the same. You make some of these decisions before the story's really going. Mm-hmm. It's in one way mirroring or exactly mapping to the way you do it in the novel. You make some decisions first and then you revise and expand those decisions as you play. Mm-hmm. But I feel like you go into Mortal Coil with a lot less pre-knowledge of the world in a very exciting way. Right. Well, because it bends to the play, right, very well. But in my experience, the reason to go to that system is because you're addressing the situation you're in. It's one of those examples of situation driving the setting creation. Because you're like, oh, I'm trapped in this sinking ship. Time to figure out how to use my elemental magic to get me out of the situation. Right. Right. Because we, in part because we know... I can I can go to that for help because I we have some established I have some understanding of how that works already, mm-hmm. and I have some understanding of how I can change how it works as a player. Right. Even though for my character will have my character might have known the whole time this is how it works. Right. And it's not like my character just invented this rule about no. Magic. Is that like you are now we're it now showing to the reader essentially like right. and here's the other thing that we do with this kind of magic. Right. And it wasn't relevant before, so it didn't come up. And that's right. what I mean about how the presentation from fiction to play works is that in fiction I might know that rule exists and I don't bring it up until it comes up in the story. Sure. Yeah. Whereas in Mortal Coil, that rule literally may not have existed until the moment when until I bring it, it up in needed. play. Yeah. Yeah. And so that whole first category that you've got of setting being created by play. You're absolutely right about kind of how they work, but is that if we picture our Venn diagram from before, to reach play in the middle, we have to pass through setting or situation. Mm-hmm. And mechanics guide us or propel us through either one. And you might come in like right at the edge, so you just barely, barely touch situation or barely touch setting on your mm-hmm. way into the center and to reach actual play. But in some way, Mortal Coil starts off with setting. What are the rules of magic? And then the situation comes up later. Right. So we reach the middle where the situation is bleeding in through setting. Mm-hmm. But then later, similar rules are answered and, and, and can arrive through situation mm-hmm. to reach the play in the middle. I have a thing in D&D where whenever somebody casts a spell, I say, what does it look like? Sure. Like how, yeah. when you cast it, what does it do? Mm-hmm. And the mechanics of it stay the same, but the cosmetics reflect the character. Mm-hmm. And that's a combination, again, of entering it. We, we've arrived through situation. I why, why am I casting the spell has been established. Right. But then once we reach the middle, we reach out and pull from setting to make it tangible and visceral and toothy and good. Mm-hmm. The whole second category to me is like adding a Z-axis to it in a, in a really fruitful way. So if it creates, if mechanic, because technically you can do setting and situation and play, and we, and in a way, even the situation engages mechanics generally, happily it should, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. it can. Yeah. Um, this is all still potentially just fictional, which is to say novelists can do this, filmmakers can do this, I can do this playing a character on Twitter and not technically need me- mechanisms yet mm-hmm. to have setting and situation engage, mm-hmm. or not needing game mechanics to do it. Now, if we have the third axis, the Z axis is mechanics. Mm-hmm. and how the rules touch down on all of this stuff and stir it up in a, in a positive way. Right. The arrows that start going up and down off of the sheet of paper, essentially. Right. Uh, yeah. Out from the paper yeah. and down into the desk. Yeah. Right. 
that to ask, what is it about? How, how is the game about it? Again, comes up. If your game is about insomniac fighter pilots, why are they insomniacs? Why don't they just go to sleep? Right. And you can answer that with setting, but more valuably, if the mechanics ask questions, then the setting shouldn't just offer a clean answer that makes mm. the that makes the mechanic redundant or mm. or feckless. In our running example here, our insomniac fighter pilots already implies a whole bunch of reasons. You're you don't have control over your own schedule. It is very important that you stay awake to do certain things because you're this fighter pilot and you know you're responding to things that are out there in the world that you don't have control over. And and I think uh, uh, it also raises questions like you know so if you could sleep, would you? Right. And if you could sleep, if you were given permission to sleep, would you be able to? Right. And so that's to me where the setting wants to honor that and mm-hmm. dramatize that. And so right. if mechanics ask questions, the setting should at least not answer those questions mm-hmm. definitively. It should help ask the question. Well, and from the other side, which I think we've kind of touched on a little bit before, but you can have a, a setting ask questions that the game mechanics answer in a, in a boring way, right? Like, mm. why does anyone go into a dungeon when they could just walk around killing rats? Right. By a strict reading of experience Mm. rules like risk reward, you know, in the setting, you're a bold adventurer going into dungeons and and slaying dragons. Right. But mechanically, there's this gray area or in some editions and in some some versions, gray area of like, or I could just keep killing kobolds and reap the same rewards with much less danger. Very, very slowly. Yes, just very, very slowly. Setting can ask those questions that the mechanics ask. Right. They can answer questions the mechanics asks to a point or keep you from asking questions about the mechanics Mm -hmm. in some ways. But they can also make you care about why the mechanics ask that question. So, for Mm -hmm. example, if I don't care what happens to this hamlet full of farmers, Mm -hmm. I may just go around killing rats forever because they're going to get eaten by a dragon. So the fiction can make us ask the question the mechanics answer. Or right. engage with to answer. Mm. That the mechanics don't actually answer. They enable us to answer it. Let's say the mechanics question is, can you go and slay this dragon? The fiction, the, the setting tells us, you, you want to find out. Let's right. go ahead and ask the question. And then the procedure answers it. Mm-hmm. The, the, the rules resolve into a dramatic answer to the question, which is, nope, dragon killed you. Can't kill that dragon. <laughs> or yes, you killed the dragon. Congratulations. And also the, the difference between a setting where there is a dragon. Can <laughs> right. you kill the dragon? versus there are 12 different kinds of dragons and they have all this um, biological kind of background to them and they have different places they live and different preferences and different things they eat. Can you kill a dragon? Why would you want to? What kind are you going after? What is the meaning of killing a chartreuse dragon versus a... Magenta. Yes. Strictly speaking, none of those questions are mechanical. They can be. I mean, they can Mm -hmm. be dramatized by the mechanics. They Mm -hmm. can be made tangible by the mechanics well, right. to why chartreuse and magenta dragons have different treasure tables or something. Right. Yeah. Like, and that's what I'm talking about with creating an opportunity. Yeah. Once you, once you establish that there's all these different kinds of dragons, you have the opportunity to design different rules to differentiate them and make them mean different things. Mm-hmm. Just as if there's an dragon, you have the opportunity to say, no, they have no rules because they're the dragon. They're a, a force of nature. They're a, they're a plot device. Or you say, no, they have the best stats in the game. Mm-hmm. Or you say, you cannot kill it with weapons. Here are the other ways that you can go about trying to slay the dragon. Where setting and, and game design deeply overlap, there's a design decision, and it is not solely setting and it is not solely mechanics, to do I give you stats for Odin? Mm-hmm. Which is to say, do I make Odin killable? Because giving Odin stats in a game like D&D may not necessarily make Odin defeatable, but it raises the question. 
Right. What do I have to get to defeat to hit this armor class enough times to take down those hit points? And this is one of the the criticisms of Call of Cthulhu, right? Like once I have stats for Migo, mm-hmm. then I'm going to figure out creative ways to overcome their mechanical efficacy with my character. And the fact that that that's not a sure thing answer in terms of the fact that having the stats clearly for for decades has not ruined Call of Cthulhu. Right. Yeah. Proves that if the setting re-engages and mm-hmm. the mechanics re-engage and the setting re-engages and the set mechanics re-engage, you know, you can spin that plate to say, so then why are Migo scary? The setting gives us lots of other reasons or additional ways to make Migo or whoever scary. Right. And then say, well, that just gives me another reason to want to bring a shotgun with me. Mm-hmm won't a shotgun work that raises the question for the gm to say why won't it like like what why is it that when you hit him he goes dead center that's you're not better off right and it so the and around and around we go yeah not not to say that there's anything wrong with call of cthulhu just that's no no but i think one I, of the things that people yeah, yeah the you're absolutely right about, about how they engage and and the fact that that kind of self-perpetuating set of questions that answer each other and then raise new questions creates that energy. Right. And in some cases, there's wisdom gained through years and years of play that creates the ability to, to, to spin them in, in these reinforcing ways mm-hmm. that aren't necessarily spelled out or aren't necessarily supported by the game text itself, right. which is another layer to all of this stuff. Kind of like, well, it doesn't say in the book that I can't pour boiling water onto an anthill and ants have to be at least one XP each, right? <laughs> like, it doesn't say that anywhere in the book that I can't do that. You can't do it because it's it's boring and pointless and meaningless. Contrary to the spirit of the game. Right. It's contrary to the spirit of, of our fantasy adventure where you're trying to save the kingdom and slay the evil dragon. Well, that's interesting. And I, I ask this only because it's news, It's new to me to think about it this way. But is that answer, is that a setting answer or a mechanics answer? Hmm. I mean, I think it's a social contract issue of like, why why are we sitting around this table together in the first place? If we assume that every mechanic asks and or answers a question, did I hit or do I know this person's lying to me or do I make a great case when I when I argue in front of the queen or whatever it is, finding out those questions and then restating them in a setting is one thing. And that's great where you say people must petition the ruling body, the queens and kings of the land to get the rights to go into dungeons. Well, now that's a thing. Now the charisma stat has something to do. Hmm. Setting is a great opportunity to create questions that ask the mechanics under different circumstances over and over and over and over again. It's sort of like making TV shows that that have a premise so that even though it's just a standalone episode every week, I still want to watch it because they're going to ask, are they going to catch the bad guy? Mm. And then this week, the question is, but what if he's invisible? And the next week is, but what if she's a genius? And the next week Mm. is, what if she's a fighter pilot or whatever? Then the setting is built, like Quantum Leap, the setting is built to ask interesting questions and sometimes the same set of questions, but in so Mm. many different contexts that the questions gain mileage. That idea of you must petition the ruler to go into the dungeon when you are essentially a, a group of landless peasants. <laughs> right. That is one struggle. When you have a proven track record and you have an advocate at the court, that's, that's a different matter. And then when you are one of the rulers, that's a different... Exactly, yeah. And when the, the dungeon that it turns out next week you really want to go to is in the queen's sister's kingdom next door where all of a sudden you are a newcomer again. Mm. So are there some specific things about tying together setting and specific mechanisms or specific ways to look for those opportunities in your setting to build more 
things, whether they're character opportunities, whether they're system opportunities, whether they're random charts. Right. Is there anything in, in particular that comes to mind about uh, how to find those and, and maybe put a pin in them for later in your process or use them to, to, to get going with a new project? I think the, the, the early spot and the best place to, to put those pins, and then this definitely essentially raises a question that we that we won't be able to answer, I think, until we talk, tackle some topics between this and the next setting episode, whenever mm-hmm. that is, but is is to think again about six senses, to think about sight, touch, taste, sound, smell, and emotion, and to think about uh, those questions in terms of when I'm designing a mechanic, what does it look like? What does it sound like? What is it what happens if I hear it from next door? What happens? What, is it, what does it leave a smell? This is everything from spells to spell systems to combat to those kinds of questions because they will hopefully lead us down visceral, tangible questions that will lead to things like, so what if I want what if I want to fight somebody in a sword fight and at the end I don't want them to be dead hmm. or whatever? But these kind of contingencies. And so not only is it a question of doing that and finding out and comparing those answers as they come up from the mechanical side, from the design side, with the assumptions or the preconceptions we have about our setting already to re-examine the setting. Right. And I think that's a really valuable thing that happens is as you work out things like your resolution system, mm-hmm. your reward cycles, uh, your character advancement, all those more... And character creation. Yeah. yeah and all yeah. those more fine-grained, mechanical inclined things. You should be open to those feeding back into the setting elements and telling you oh, what does it look like when a character levels up? Right. What does it look like when a new power tree unlocks for a character class? What does it look like when a player spends these meta points to establish a new NPC? Or a reroll. When do we describe the reroll? How do we integrate it with our, our setting and how things have been established so far? Can other characters tell? Is a great version of that. It's the same mm-hmm. way of asking, right? That what does it look like? One of my favorite little little examples of this, and it's in lots of games, and I think it's a good best practice, which is like when you're doing a meta thing, like what does that look like? In the Mountain Witch, which is based entirely around trust, trust mechanics, your your Ronin are, are, are all theoretically working together, but you all have a dark fate that is going to emerge in some way and you might end up betraying each other, et cetera. You have trust in each other and it's represented by points and you can spend trust to aid someone in a conflict and, and add your dice together, or usually you, you only take the highest. And it's very, very clear in the book, describe how your Ronin aids the other person. Like to spend the point, you have to tell us at the table what that looks like and how they're doing it. It could very easily just be a meta mechanic to spend the point, roll our dice together and go. But because trust is so central to the game, taking that moment to be, and a lot of the times it's not easy. Yeah. Like in a lot of conflicts, depending on the on the situation, you might not be next to each other. You might be in different kind of states of being versus like the, the, the magic of the witch or whatever. So having the player sit there and go, oh man, how do I help them? It is clearly mechanically good that I do it and I want to because I want them to succeed. How does my character use what they have at their disposal to aid them in this moment? And that ends up creating all these opportunities as the the GM in that game to to dig into that as a crease and be like, well, he hesitated a really long time before handing you that arrow. (laughs) Right. Right. Or like while the two of you were over here, this person got totally, you know, got got carried away by wolves or or whatever. And it that's a second layer meaning 
that the GM needs to latch on to because your job in that game as the GM is to poke and pry at the cracks between the characters and try and force them apart and and add tension through uh, all those little details that might be glossed over in a game that doesn't have the possibility of betrayal as a core part of the game. And in a lot of ways, that's stating and restating the core question of the game again, right? Which is, do, do you trust this other Ronin? Yeah. What if this? What if that? Yeah, what about now? What about now? Yeah. How about when this happens? Mm. And how do we know you trust them? Right. And so at least in those great moments, like you say, between not just showing it, but how do the characters talk about this mechanic? Right. Do they talk about this mechanic? Mm. And, and, and it's one of the great things in Mountain Witch, right, of course, is that they can talk about trust all they want, but then it can also be backed up by a mechanic, which is, you know, you say that, that how much trust you put in me. Right. But we've never actually... Yeah, you've never actually <laughs> helped the trust me. mechanic. Yeah. You've never actually spent any of those points on me. So, yeah, which is great. I mean, the game says, okay, but what does that look like? How do you help them? Mm-hmm. The setting better have lots of ways to answer that question. Mm-hmm. Not only literally, not, I mean, like you could do it as specifically as having a list of, of options like in a move in a, in a Powered by the Apocalypse thing. Or you can have it just be browse through uh, books of epic Japanese history stories or of art books or whatever, just so that I can say things like, if I pass you an arrow, or is there like, can I not only know, but then also communicate to you, there's a big meaning if I pass you three arrows or something. Right. You can develop text and subtext with the other players, historical or ahistorical or fantastical mm-hmm. or, or science fictional, but so that the setting should provide those ways to answer some of those questions, not necessarily like definitively, but to be fuel that the players can as- right. atomically reassemble and say, are there even arrows in this setting? And right. of course, Mountain Witch does that beautifully because it's both finite, but drawing right. on so much great lore and visuals and a combination of great right. setting again, material. Yeah, it is, it, it is again both historical and fictional yeah. and mythological. There's a part in the, in, the, in the book actually where he kind of outlines a bunch of, here are some different antagonists that could be like servants of the witch, so Oni and Tengu and stuff like that. And then he says, the thing about Japanese mythology is that if you can think of something, it's probably in there somewhere. So like if you want giant insects, yeah, they're in there. If you want shape-shifting lizard creatures, they're in there. If you want spirits of the sky, they're they're in there somewhere. So don't be beholden to like finding specific things. And it's nice because as the the author of the book, right? It's kind of giving you permission to be like if you really want to get deep into the mythology and find specific creatures, great. If you don't, it's in there somewhere. Don't worry about it. If someone calls you on it, all you have to do is say, there's a lot of mythology and I'm just pulling this out for this specific moment and that's it. You're not going to be quizzed on it later. Yeah, there's no quiz. It doesn't have to, it's not going to be measured against how well it puzzle pieces into actual Japanese mythology. Right. Thank you for listening to the Design Games Podcast. Visit designgamespodcast.com to leave questions, like episodes, and click the heart button on anything on that page that you find delightful come check out our Google Plus community. You can just search for Design Games Podcast on Google Plus. There's also a link at designgamespodcast.com. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just...